Good morning, everybody. This is Megan with the VBAC link, and we are here today with our friend Eve. She is amazing. All of you guys are amazing. We love you all, and we're excited to hear her story and a little bit more about what she does too. I'm kind of excited to pick her her brain a little bit about what she does as a profession. So she is an art therapist and a mental health counselor. And so um, as you know, in the VBAC world, there's a lot of, well, in the whole world, there's a lot of mental health. Mental health is, um, we're in like, I would say a crisis. I don't know if Eve, if you would agree, but I feel like we're in like a mental health crisis yeah. right now. Yeah. And sometimes after birth, whether it be the birth that you wanted or not even that you wanted both, we can have struggles. And we also know that through birth and postpartum and all the things that mental health is a big, important factor. So I'm excited to talk more with her about that. And as of course, as well as share her story. Of course, we have a review of the week first. And this is from Anne. And she says, these ladies are absolutely an absolute joy to listen to on their podcast. I feel so fortunate to have found them on my journey to what will hopefully be two VBAC with a two VBAC. So it means a second VBAC with twins. Oh, that's awesome. When I had my first VBAC, I felt educated as I had read through books and websites. Now I feel empowered. Thanks to Julie and Megan, I feel more confident advocating for myself and asking the right questions. I recommend you to all of their mamas. I come across to in the VBAC groups and often refer to specific episodes I've listened to. Thank you for all that you do. You women of strength, you. Oh, I love that. I love that. That is something that we totally encourage. Like this podcast, although it's feedback like specific, it can really benefit anybody listening to it. So first time mom, learn how to avoid the C-section, learn how to advocate for yourself, learn how to find a supportive provider all of these things for first, second, third time, fourth time moms, whether a C-section or not, it's going to benefit you. You are tuned into the VBAC Link podcast with Megan Heaton, who is a longtime doula and VBAC mom herself, here to help you get inspired for birth after having had a C-section. Along with this podcast, the VBAC Link offers blogs, resources, and a comprehensive VBAC course for both parents preparing for birth and doulas wanting to take their VBAC education to the next level. Be sure to follow Megan and her team on all social media platforms for even more. Although these podcast episodes are VBAC specific, it is encouraged for all expectant moms to listen and educate themselves on how to avoid a C-section from the get-go. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It is not meant to replace advice from any other qualified medical professional. Here is your host, Megan. Okay, Eve. First off, I wanted to just say thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to be here with us. And I also really want to dive in to a little bit of what you do before we get into your story. Can you tell us a little bit more about art therapy? What, what is an art therapist? What do you do? Because you, you wrote a little bit in your form that you sent us. And I was like, okay, this is awesome. So <laughs> share more with us. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. First of all, this is just such a privilege. And I feel like this is sort of like the icing on the cake to my whole experience. So just Aww. thank you. Yes. Um, so as an art therapist and a counselor, I provide traditional talk therapy, but there's like an extra spin on it because I invite the creative process into the work I do with my clients. So sometimes 
we have traumatic experiences, as a lot of listeners here have had, and I myself had. And sometimes that trauma makes it really difficult to speak about the things that happen to us mm-hmm. um, to be able to move forward. And so that's just one example of a reason why doing something creative could really help you to draw out some of that emotions and make it a little bit easier to speak about it or just to get some of that off of your chest by putting it out onto paper or making something out of clay or even through movement. So there's a lot of different ways that that creativity can be expressed. But for things that are really challenging to speak on, the creative process can be really wonderful to help to, um, to benefit clients. Um, so what I do, my specialty is using the creative process one-on-one with clients. Um, mm. But I also have recently launched a new part of my program, which is doing professional development with companies and also community groups uh, who believe that they want to bring more self-care into their into their worlds. So um, what I would do is I would come in, I do uh, like a mental health wellness piece, whatever feels relevant to that group. And then we'll do a related art project and talk about how that went um, so that they can deepen the experience and learn a bit more about themselves and hopefully bring some of those tools into their lives for their own self-care on a regular basis. Wow. I love that. So you have a course that, that did you create the course or is this like a collaborative yeah, it, it's all me. <laughs> so, so this is something new that I'm, I'm just launching. Um, and I'm really excited to share it. I have done professional development in other ways. And I wanted to bring my creativity and my passion for art therapy into the general population. So this is for people mm-hmm. who are not just interested in therapy, but people who just want to deepen their self care and gain some more self awareness and hopefully find some better ways to relax. Gosh, I love that. That is so awesome. And we'll do, do you mind plugging in your website? And then of course we're going to have it. We tell everybody your website and then we're going to have that in the show notes for you as well. Sure, absolutely. Yep. It's getcreativewellness.com and I will drop it into the chat right now so you can see it. Awesome. Awesome. And you are on Instagram as well, right? Yes. yes. And it's, and it, so there it's get at get.creative.wellness. So definitely check her out. All right. Awesome. Is there anything else that you'd like to share about mental health? No, just that, you know, it's something that applies to everybody and not to let it go. If you sense that something's off with you, definitely follow your instinct and don't let it go because the longer you let it go, the more it will take over your life and be harder to come out of. So it's really important not to keep pushing through some of these mental health challenges that we have Mm -hmm. because sometimes it's a lot more than just day-to-day stress and we really don't want to let those things build up inside of us and it really affects all the things that we do. I mean, overall, I think moms <laughs> tend to put themselves last a lot mm-hmm. and um, self-care is really not selfish. It's really something that is necessary in order to be the best mothers and partners and you know daughters and all the person. other roles that play. <laughs> yeah, the best person that you can <laughs> exactly. be. You know, you've got to right. be well and balanced and it's okay if you're unbalanced. That's okay too. Like it happens and it's okay to take charge of your care. So love that message. Okay. Well, let's dive into your story because you have, you have a lot of things in your story as far as, you know, um, induction that didn't go as planned, IUGR, um, inner, inner uterine growth restrictions, baby in the NICU. So you've got all these little things that I would, you know, it's, kind of unique. Some of these things are unique. So 
I would love for you to share. Thanks. Yeah, I, I was really excited to share my story because I, I've listened to so many episodes and, and I know I hear a lot of stories about big babies. Mm-hmm. And so I've always listened and been like, are there any episodes on small babies? Because that has been my experience with both of my babies. Um, so they both were a little bit different. So I'm excited to share and hopefully it will help some other people who might be experiencing this, something similar. Yes. All right. So I will start with my first pregnancy. So my husband and I were married for about a year. And we figured if we were going to start a family, we should probably get on that because I was 35 and we didn't know what that journey might look like for us. Um, So we figured we'd give it a shot and we were fortunate to be pregnant very quickly. So we said, okay, we're really doing this now. (laughs) Um, So we had planned for a natural birth at a birth center. I tend to be very natural and holistic minded in everything I do in my life. So that was sort of a no brainer for me that I really wanted an out of hospital hospital birth if possible. And I really never gave much consideration to other possibilities because I didn't realize how often interventions are pushed and the frequency of other outcomes. Like I thought a C-section or a hospital transfer would only happen if I was in labor and something went wrong and we would have to go that route. I really didn't think about any other ways that you might end up with a C-section. So I thought um, we were going to have this birth at the birth center. My pregnancy was fairly easy and comfortable. I took very good care of myself. I was eating well. I gained the right amount of weight that was recommended. I was doing chiropractic my entire pregnancy. And also before that, I've, I've been in chiropractic care for many years. So I just continued with that for my pregnancy. I was exercising a lot, you know, a lot of walking and doing some light weights and yoga. I was drinking red raspberry leaf tea. Just in general, I felt really great throughout. So I had no inkling of, oh, this is not going to happen for me. So we went for our anatomy scan at 19 weeks, and there were some concerns with the size. I believe at the time my son was measuring about the 12th percentile. And they also saw that I had complete placenta previa. So I was recommended to come back again to check in the third trimester to make sure the previa had cleared and do another growth scan. So I came back at 28 weeks and the previa had cleared. So I was good to go with that. And and then I was also very thankful that the weight was now measuring around the 23rd percentile, I believe. So I said, okay, we're in the clear and I didn't have any more scans. So at 40 weeks, I got to my 40 week appointment. I should mention that I still continue to feel great throughout. In fact, I Now looking back, maybe I felt a little too comfortable even towards the end of my pregnancy. But at 40 weeks, I was still pregnant. So I went to my appointment and I had a cervical check and I was hard and closed. And the midwife there said, there's a strong chance that you'll still be pregnant next week. So she said that I should go get my amniotic fluid levels checked. So I did that at 41 weeks. So my fluid levels were fine and the blood flow to and from the placenta looked good. Everything was looking pretty good. However, the baby was measuring small. So the doctor, I had to go to a hospital to, um, to get these scans done since I was having my care at a birth center and they didn't do these, these tests there. So the doctor at the hospital who read my scan recommended that I induce that day. They said, your baby is estimated at weighing six pounds, 13 ounces. And that would be considered IUGR for a 41-week pregnancy. But to me, I felt like, well, six pounds, 13 ounces. I mean, I'm only 5'3". My husband's not tall. I I mean, I felt like we, that probably sounded like a decent-sized baby for us to have. So I declined the induction. 
And I called the midwives and they had me come in that day to the birth center. I remember it being very awkward because the office was closing soon. So the lights were out in a lot of the office and they sort of just took me into this one room that was still open. So already it was like kind of an eerie feeling just being there at that time of day. I think it was maybe like six o'clock or so. So they had me come in and do a non-stress test and a membrane sweep. And then they had three different people try to put in a Foley balloon, but they couldn't get it in. (laughs) So that was really probably the first time that I started feeling a little bit like I was being experimented on because it was like all these people trying to do this thing, Yeah, um, which was really vulnerable because I also never had that done to me before. So, but I was like willing to try anything because I really didn't want to be induced. And I was still hoping at this point that I could deliver at the birth center. Mm-hmm. However, um, while I was getting my non-stress test and they're telling me, oh, everything looks good, <laughs> they also dropped the ball on me that I was now considered high risk with my pregnancy and I couldn't deliver at the birth center because right. now because now my baby had this IUGR diagnosis. Uh, yeah. So that was really difficult to accept because, you know, I was really pumped for having this natural childbirth and we took all the classes and I was reading all the books and you were ready. Yeah, I was ready. I was ready. And I really believed wholeheartedly that this was the type of birth that I wanted and that this was going to be possible for me. I really had no thought in my mind that this was not going to happen for me. I felt like if I willed it, it would be so, Mm -hmm. which I obviously realize now was foolish, but or maybe just naive. But I, you know, I think that that's a big part of my story is, is um, sort of feeling like a failure mm. because I didn't get the things that I, that I hoped for. Um, and I, I know that there were people along the way who sort of questioned my choice to deliver at a birth center and the fact that I wanted to, everything to be natural. And I had this feeling in, that people would say, see, see, it's, you can't just go in and, and do that, you know? So I already was sort of feeling a bit like I failed because now I was going to have to deliver in a hospital. So part of me was also angry because I didn't even know Mm -hmm. that they were going to be measuring the baby at that time. I thought I was just getting Mm -hmm. my, my amniotic fluid levels checked and I was not, I didn't give consent to do any other testing. And then they just came in and were like, Oh, they're measured. The baby is measuring small. Mm. So I was angry because I said, well, what if it's wrong? You know, what if the baby's really seven pounds, 13 ounces, right? Um, So that being said, at this point, I was 41 weeks, and I finally decided to stop working. I was working all throughout, and I was showing up to work every day, and people were saying, why are you still here? You're still pregnant? Why are you still here? And that was also getting frustrating because, you know, I knew that the baby should be coming soon, but I was frustrated too, and to have people just point it out to me wasn't really that helpful. Mm -hmm. So I started, I decided to stop working, and... um, At that point, I was being pressured to be induced, you know, not in a harsh way, but I was getting a lot of phone calls daily from the midwives at the birth center saying, are you feeling anything? Are you, you know, do you think that anything's happening? I had to go for a daily non-stress test and all of them passed, but I felt very pressured to go into labor on my own to to avoid the induction. So I thought to myself, well, at least if I have to have a hospital birth, If I can somehow get something going without an induction, maybe I can still have somewhat of a natural birth experience. So I had no education on this at all. I was, this was not anything I had even considered. 
So now in the last week of my pregnancy, I was trying all of these natural induction methods. So I was doing evening primrose oil and eating pineapple and walking a bunch, even though I was already walking, I was just sort of increasing that. I did acupuncture a couple times. I had a couple membrane sweeps. And then my last thing that I tried was castor oil. Mm. And that was very intense. I did have, I think, some mild contractions um, after taking the castor oil, but I think it was just because it was such like a violent cleanse coming out both ways, because then it sort of just tapered off and didn't turn into anything. So I was getting frustrated about being encouraged to induce from my providers, and even one of my family members was starting to turn in that direction. And you know, I was starting to question if I really was putting my baby at risk by staying pregnant. So I agreed to induce at 41 plus six. And I just remember so clearly the feeling of walking into the hospital already, like clutching my pillow and feeling really defeated. And just each step in the process felt like it was against what I wanted. So I was in the hospital and every time there was an intervention proposed, I was asked if I wanted it, but I really didn't know of any other choices and I didn't feel good about any of the interventions that were proposed to me. I was just kind of like, I guess I have to go along. I don't really think I have any other choice. So I was very close to the process overall. And I do think that that really affected my recovery emotionally because I was so against it. I think being closed-minded and wanting this really natural childbirth experience hindered me in a way because I was not open to anything else. So there were a couple things that were on my, <laughs> on my hopes and dreams list that I was able to do while at the hospital during this induction. They let me take a shower and um, I, I brought music and I brought some aromatherapy and some visual aids, but I didn't use most of those things. But the first thing that they did was they, they inserted Cervidil and two hours later, I remember I was talking with my husband and I started laughing and my water broke. <laughs> and I was like, oh, maybe something's going to happen now. So I asked to wait an hour or so to see if anything would pick up because I had heard of people who once their water broke, they didn't really need any other interventions and contractions just sort of picked up on their own. So that did not happen for me. Um, so after a couple hours, they started me on a low dose of Pitocin and I remember at this point I, I needed to be hooked up since I was now on Pitocin, I was being continually monitored. And that was the first time where I really started to feel that I was being experimented on because I was hooked up and they didn't have mobile monitoring at this hospital. So I had to stay tethered to the bed. I could only move about five feet from the bed. That's and I remember so hard when you feel like you're already feeling like an experiment and now you're feeling stuck. Yeah. And also I didn't have any until this, like the very end of my pregnancy, I had a very comfortable pregnancy. I didn't have any issues with high blood pressure or any sugar issues or, you know, everything. I felt really good. So I felt like I didn't really, I really didn't want to be hooked up to things. And so I wanted to go to the bathroom. <laughs> so I got up and I went to the bathroom and I unhooked myself. And I remember one of the nurses came in and yelled at me and said, what are you doing? You're on Pitocin. And I was like, I have legs and I want to use the bathroom. I don't want to sit on this toilet right next to the bed, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So clearly that was not allowed. So I basically stayed in the bed the whole rest of the time. And 
after about uh, 18 hours of my water being broken and really no changes happening, I was barely dilating, I started leaking meconium. Mm. I think I might have had a mild fever. I'm a little fuzzy on it, but I think I was starting to have a little fever too. Um, So when I was checked there, I was only at about three centimeters so the midwife who was, who was there with me from the birth center recommended that we increase the Pitocin to try to deliver vaginally because we were really up against the clock. Those were her words. So that made me feel very pressured. <laughs> and uh, I was just like, okay, well, I guess that's my only choice. So, okay, let's try it. And I agreed to get an epidural, even though I was really scared and I really didn't want it. Um, So the anesthesiologist came in and I remember she was very, very impatient. She had no empathy for the fact that I was unsure about wanting this. And she said to me, I have other people waiting. So I need you to make a decision. So I was just like, okay, I guess I'll do it. So I got the epidural. There were no issues actually placing it, but as soon as I laid back down and I started to go numb, I had a severe panic attack. I'm not really prone to panic attacks. I've definitely had some general anxiety and I have had some more mild panic attacks in the past, but this was like really, really bad. Hmm. (laughs) Um, Like my teeth were chattering. I felt totally out of control. I had no feeling in my legs at all. And then there was one spot that didn't take on the right side of my pelvis. And so they were telling me, oh, you have to turn your body. And I'm like, well, I can't move. So they had to turn me. And I just felt, I felt just totally out of control. And like I had no choices. And I felt like everything just had gone from bad to worse by this point. Mm. So now they were like, okay, well, we can't start the Pitocin again because your heart rate is like totally (laughs) too high right now. So it took me about 45 minutes to finally get my heart rate at a normal level. And I remember the midwife who was there, she came in and she started doing needlepoint (laughs) right next to the bed. And I remember at first being very annoyed by that, but then I was like, oh, I think I know what she's doing because as an art therapist, I'm thinking maybe she's doing this to distract me because she wants me to be able to try to focus on something else. So that's what I did. And I just sort of watched her. I watched her fingers as she was doing the the needlepoint and that was what helped me to calm down. And finally, I said, okay, I'm ready. I feel calm. Let's try putting the Pitocin back on. So the nurses came in, they put it back on. And then literally less than a minute afterward, the baby's heart rate was not responding well. I don't remember if it was going up or down, but it was not even a minute. And they came in, they were like, you're going to have a C-section. So I I will admit that in some ways, because I knew the C-section was the last stop in the road, I felt relieved that there would not be any more interventions to try and fail or be coerced into without having enough information. But I also did not understand what would happen in a C-section besides that they cut you open and take the baby out. Like I I really had no idea what really happens in a Mm C-section. So the same anesthesiologist comes into the room And it was just like a movie. She comes in and she goes, I'm back. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, Mm -hmm. as if I already didn't have, you know, ill feelings towards you from the first time. (laughs) Thank you for announcing. (laughs) Yeah. 
So, and I'm, honestly, I have no idea if this is true, but I have this feeling that she made it so heavy because I felt so drugged. I could barely hold my eyes open or form sentences after that. And while having the surgery that I have I had a feeling that she was kind of like, oh, she's alive one, give her a high dose. But, mm-hmm. um, but who knows? So um, I also remember at this time before we went into the OR, someone came in from the NICU who I had never met. I don't remember if it was... Um, a physician or I, I don't know who it was, but somebody from the NICU who was on the team that would be working on the baby if, if it was necessary came in. And I remember she was holding my hand and being really syrupy sweet and saying, don't worry, I'll take care of your baby. And I found it to be very inauthentic <laughs> and annoying because mm-hmm. I didn't want to talk to her. I just, I really just wanted peace for a few minutes and I wasn't mm-hmm. very welcoming of her support. And I, I later I did apologize to her for that, but the timing was not, was not the best. <laughs> and I also, I felt like I could see through it. Like I felt like she was putting something on because I had never met this woman and she didn't know me. And here she was like holding my mm-hmm. hand really tight. And I was like, I didn't really show you any signs that I needed my handhold right now, you know? Mm-hmm. So anyway, so right before surgery, I'm lying on the table and my husband came in with me and the midwife is there next to me on the other side. And so I had, I did have their support and I remember not being able, like I said, to form sentences. And and she said to me, you know, don't worry (laughs) because sometimes people feel like they can't breathe from the anesthesia. And I'm thinking like, I just had this massive panic attack and now you're telling me that I might not be able to feel that I can breathe. So I, I try not to let it get to me because I was like, well, here I am. I'm, you know, I'm not going anywhere. But what I did like was throughout each part of the C-section, the doctor explained what was happening. And they said, you know, you might feel this here. You might feel a little tugging or, you know, every single thing that was happening, they did tell me. So I felt that I was included a bit in the process. But one thing I do remember was once they actually got to my son, the doctor said, you made the right decision. This baby wasn't coming out. And I didn't know what that meant. And that made me feel, that was like the first time where I felt really, I guess, the mom guilt. Like, did I keep him in too long? You know, like, should I have induced sooner type of thing? So after he came out, he wasn't crying yet. So and I was very drugged. So I really didn't know what was going on. The midwife brought him around for a brief second before taking him off to the side where people were working on him, I'm assuming because they were pumping out all the meconium. And it felt like a very long time before we heard his cry. And I remember thinking, oh, his cry sounds really cute. Um, Even though I always hated the sound of babies crying before. (laughs) So, but I asked my husband, Mike, I said, is he, I said, is he beautiful? Because like I said, I was really drugged. (laughs) And he didn't really say anything because he wasn't really sure what was happening. I could tell he was worried. And finally, the midwife brought him over to me and, you know, he was all wrapped up and I tried to hold him to my chest as best as I could. And she said, he's, he's doing well. We're going to take him to the regular nursery, which really meant bring him to our room. So I felt some relief that he's okay. Um, So he was born on the small side. He was six pounds, seven ounces, which might not sound super tiny, but he was also 21 inches long. So, yeah. so he was, so he was very thin. And after talking with other people after, after the fact, it sounds like his presentation really is very typical for a, a IHR baby because he had a very large head and his body was very skinny. 
So it's like all of the weight was being and energy was going towards the brain and the areas that most need it. And so his body sort of had lost all that brown fat and he was very thin. I remember in his newborn pictures, you could see his ribs. And that was like another time where I felt some guilt. Like, did I cause this somehow? That sort of thing. Mm, yeah. So my mom and stepfather, medicine recovery, my husband was the first one to really spend time holding him because I didn't really feel uh, stable enough to hold him while being in the wheel down a bed. And, and then he was really only in the room with us for half the day because his temperature kept going down. So at one point, it had gone down to 92 degrees. And um, he went to the nursery under the warmer a couple times, but at the hospital where we were, apparently the third time that happens, it's they get they get sent to the NICU. So after they had done the warmer a couple times and it wasn't wasn't working for very long, he went down to the NICU and we had so many tests run, and everything was coming back normal. So it seemed like getting him to gain weight was really what was needed to get his temperature to stay in a healthy range. So they were giving him a lot of formula and this was also not my plans because I wanted to exclusively breastfeed in the beginning. And now he was being pumped full of all this extra calorie formula, but I, I felt fine with that because I was like, look, he needs to gain weight and I didn't really have milk coming in yet. So I just went with it. So later, we, uh, shortly before he was discharged, I remember a NICU nurse who was there, she told us that she was in the surgery and she said, I thought for sure he'd be going right to the NICU because he was covered in poop when he came out. <laughs> so he was there for a week. And during that time, it was really difficult to process because I was recovering from the C-section and we were in the hospital for most of that week as well. Um, but I had a lot of disappointment and shock and... I just felt very disconnected to my body. It was really hard to move and walk. And I felt a lot of times like my body was just ripping in half where I had the incision. And uh, if I moved the wrong way, it was just really, um, really challenging and frustrating. And I also felt exhausted and very sad. And I felt like I had no time to process what had happened at all. And I, I just really felt like I kind of got robbed of the birth experience in general. I felt like I didn't really have a chance to experience any part of labor and that the birth experience I hoped for was taken from me. So I don't feel that way now necessarily. I feel like certain parts could have been different, but I know that um, my son definitely needed some help and some extra support when he was born. So I'm, I'm accepting of that now. Yeah. So the feeding schedule of the NICU was every three hours. So we would go down, we would do a diaper change, we'd take his temperature, we'd feed him whatever breast milk I had, then give him some formula. Then we'd go back to our room. I would pump for 20 minutes to try to get some supply going. And I would have a snack. And then I would have people coming in and out of the room constantly, all reminding me to eat and rest. But there was really no opportunity to be alone to do that. <laughs> so it was mm -hmm. very challenging to be on this really rigorous schedule after having surgery and trying to be there for my son, but also not having a chance to emotionally process everything that had happened. Mm -hmm. The nurses really weren't communicating well during changes of shifts about my medications. And I was taking... I was really just taking Motrin and Tylenol, so it would wear off, and then I would be in a lot of pain because I wasn't taking anything stronger than that. And so I had to keep reminding them when I needed my medication, and it was just very frustrating. <laughs> so we spent five days in the hospital, including Thanksgiving, which was really sad because I was thankful that my son was there, but 
and that he was okay, but we also really didn't know if he was going to be okay yet. And so it was a really, we had a lot of mixed feelings and it was really hard to be alone in the hospital during that time. And I should mention, this is also, this is before COVID by a few months. So it wasn't that we were alone because, because of COVID. We were just alone because with him being in the NICU, a lot of visitors were not allowed. So the nurses and doctors gave him great care. We learned a lot in that experience. We had a lot of help with breastfeeding. We learned how to change a diaper the right way, how to take his temperature. We got him on a sleep schedule right from the beginning. So we did get some benefit from the NICU experience. But shortly before he was discharged, one of the nurses said, he makes his needs known. (laughs) And I remember he was one of the only full-time babies that was there and he had the loudest cry in there. So I think they were ready to... (laughs) ready to discharge him because it was pretty quiet except for our son screaming. But I realized with that comment that she made how fortunate we were to have a generally healthy full-term baby who just needed to put on some weight to be able to take him home. Because I know a lot of families who experience the NICU have much greater challenges than what we went through. And so I just want to mention that. So, um, his, he was long and skinny when he was born, but eventually his growth did catch up after a few months, and I worked really hard to build up my, my milk supply, um, and now he's almost three, and he's smart and energetic, and he just amazes mm. us every, every day. <laughs> yeah, so, so I had a lot of guilt about my son's beginning, even though there was really nothing I could think of that I had done to cause it, and that was hard to accept because I really wanted to have an answer. And I knew I wanted some support around my recovery, and I was really having trouble relating to the birth experiences of the people in my inner circle, even though they were trying to be supportive because nobody had really had an experience like mine. And so I Googled C-section support group, and that was how I found the VBAC link. And so, oh, yeah, awesome. and so I, yeah, and I remember I was, I was just back to work. I was about three months postpartum, and... I found the podcast and on one of my breaks, I started listening. I was like, oh my gosh, this is exactly what I need. Like I need to hear people who have stories that I can relate to and get some inspiration from that because I knew that I didn't want to have a similar experience if we had another child. Mm -hmm. So I also started seeing a postpartum therapist um, in addition to listening to the VBAC link and um, I was having some past trauma come up. So I knew that I needed some, um, some more formal therapy. So I was doing that as well. And then a little over a year later, our son was 14 months and we got pregnant again, but we had a, an early pregnancy loss. Um, I, I, we believe I was only about seven weeks pregnant. And so we decided to wait a while to try again and process that experience. And we were working on some other goals at the time. So we figured let's, you know, let's put having another baby on hold for a little while. Cause I felt like I really needed to, um, to process that. I didn't want to rush into it. So during that pregnancy that we lost, I had started care with a midwife in our area who people have called the VBAC whisperer. And I thought, oh, she's going to be a great fit for me. But when I had my pregnancy loss, she had no compassion. And I remember when I called because I was bleeding and I said, and I said, you know, should I be alarmed? because she sounded a little annoyed that I called and she goes, I don't know. Do you want me to tell you to be alarmed? Just like that. And I was like, um, 
I was thinking, well, I would like some, you know, education about what I can do or some possibilities. Like there was nothing constructive for me to try or, you know, anything. So I swore that I would never work with her again. And I ended up getting much more support around that loss from the midwives at the birth center where we had gone for um, our prenatal care with our son. So that luckily I still had other providers that I trusted that I could reach out to. So that baby's due date was estimated to be October 8th of 2021. And we found out we were pregnant again on October 6th, 2021 a couple of days before the baby we lost would have yeah. been born. And so it was very meaningful to me because it made me feel like somehow the loss made way for a new life. And so I, I, I just held that with me. Like I still, it helped me to remember the loss in a more, um, in a more positive and, and meaningful way. So I started my care at the birth center, even though I knew that I couldn't continue there because they don't accept VBAC clients. So um, I ended up moving on to care with a different midwife who I had never met or worked with previously. And this midwife was VBAC supportive and very trauma informed and was able to deliver my baby at a different hospital, which I had heard was more VBAC supportive. And I really liked this midwife because they kept it real with me about possibilities of what to expect in a hospital setting to help me prepare going into this birth, expecting to be in a hospital. Because I think, like I said, I was thinking all along with my first pregnancy, I'm going to be in a birth center. It's going to be all natural. It'll be like being in a bedroom. And, you know, I hadn't even considered, well, what if I end up in a hospital? So it was helpful for me to really consider, you know, some other possibilities this time around. I was trying to be more realistic this time. I also hired a doula who was very comforting and non-judgmental, and she had two children with a similar age gap from what our, my, my children would have, and so I felt she could relate to some of my experiences, and that was really nice. This pregnancy, I had, it was very similar to the first one. I, again, I did chiropractic throughout. I had minimal discomfort throughout the pregnancy until the third trimester. For a couple of weeks, I did have some sharp pelvic pain, um, which made walking and moving and even lying down comfortably very difficult. Um, and I also had some digestive pain for a few days. So I was wearing a support band and I went to the chiropractor a little bit more during that time. I went to a pelvic floor specialist and eventually it did, it did get better. So I was thankful that it, it got better because I was like 37, 38 weeks at that time. But luckily it, it improved before I was at the very end of my pregnancy. So at one point I thought maybe I'll deliver before my due date this time because I was having that discomfort. But then my due date came and went, and I started asking my midwife more questions about what an induction might look like, because that was really what I most feared, and I wanted to have more information this time so that I could prepare. I feel much more comforted when I have more information. So I was really worried about the cascade of interventions happening again and going into the process in a similar way as I did with my first birth. And this midwife that I was working with said that they'd be comfortable with me going to 41 plus five or six before inducing as long as everything was looking good. So I might have to go for a non-stress test again or something like that. So now because my son was an IUGR pregnancy, my third trimester, I was being monitored more closely this time. 
And we wanted to make sure that we didn't miss anything because we didn't have the IUGR diagnosis until 41 weeks. And that really, I think, made it difficult to prepare. So I had more ultrasounds at the hospital where I was going to deliver. And at 32 weeks, we had a scan that looked like we might have another IUGR diagnosis. Um, Her abdominal circumference was between 10 to 11 percent. And once you get below 10%, that's considered IUGR. So now I had to keep going for more scans because of that. And um, the doctor who read my scan at the hospital came in and warned me that with IUGR, they recommend to deliver by 39 weeks, which of course made me nervous because I had gone to 42 weeks without labor the first time. And I wondered whether I'd be able to have the experience of labor at all, since this would likely be my last child. And I was 38 years old, and I, you know, I wasn't really planning to have more than two children. I really just wanted to have some experience of labor. So when I told her of my hopes for a VBAC and my preference not to induce, the doctor said to me, look, as someone who has done it three times, it's not all that. (laughs) And I remember being like, oh my gosh, lady, like, that's great for you to say, but you've had three vaginal births. So you obviously don't know. (laughs) You don't know what it's like to not experience it. It was just, you know, Mm -hmm. she had no sense of of how that could be a loss. Right. She didn't know that that could also be a loss. Like the birth experience can be mourned as well. And so I actually considered not having another scan because I wanted to avoid everything that had happened with my first pregnancy and I still had it in my mind, you know, the numbers could be wrong and it was causing me so much stress. And ultimately I did decide that I wanted more information so that if we did end up with an IUGR diagnosis, that I would have more data to decide on the next steps um, and have time to accept a change of plans this time if I needed to. So Luckily, we went back at 36 weeks and her growth had improved and now the abdominal circumference was about 23%. So she, so now we just were going to wait and she was just considered constitutionally small. So I did not have the IUGR diagnosis with her. So I started taking red raspberry leaf tea. so awesome. Yeah. So I started taking red raspberry leaf tea again. I decided to stop working at 38 weeks this time. Um, So I was already... I had some time on my hands to sort of, you know, just be pregnant and relax and do things that I needed to do. So as I was getting to 41 weeks, I started to feel like I was on a clock and I was pressured to make something happen to avoid another induction. (laughs) So, and that was my own pressure. No one was putting that pressure on me, but it was in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. So at 41 weeks, I went for acupuncture and I felt a lot of movement. My midwife never pushed cervical checks. But when I was there, I asked, is there anything that we can do to get this moving? So my midwife said, well, we could do a cervical check and a sweep. So I decided to do that. And I was two centimeters and 80% effaced at 41 plus one. So I was shocked and very excited because I hadn't had anything. Awesome. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Something's happening. So I had this membrane sweep. And then that night around eight o'clock, I started having sharp cramps. They were about 10 seconds long, and they were coming every three to five minutes. And my doula advised me to rest and hydrate, so I tried to do that. I was lying on the floor with the lights dim and my birth ball. But I asked my husband to stay up with me because I was starting to need some support with the contractions. 
So I still wasn't sure I was in labor, but I asked my mom to come anyway because she lives about an hour and a half away. And our plan was for her to stay with our son while we went to the hospital. So she got there around 1.30 in the morning. And I, you know, had these contractions that were not really following a pattern yet. And the next morning, our son got up around six and my mom and my husband were taking turns watching him and then giving me counter pressure and they were sort of going back and forth. And since I hadn't been in labor before, I didn't call the doula to come because I was expecting that I still had a while to go. And I was coping fairly well just with them. So I said, why don't we just, you know, we'll ride it out a little longer. And then my contraction started spacing out. So I, um, so I asked my husband to, who had come to the, gone to the park with my son to come home. And this was around, it was close to 10 in the morning, 9.30 or 10 in the morning. And I asked him to come back because my contraction started picking up again once they had left. I think my body was having trouble focusing when my son was there and kind of wanting me and needing me. And then once they left the house, everything picked up and started to get much stronger. So of course our bags weren't packed and it took us a while to get out of the house <laughs> and we got in the car and now my contractions are like three minutes apart in the car. And I was like putting my left fist behind my low back and gripping, gripping the handle above the window with my right hand and doing horsey lips and moaning really loudly. And I don't know how my husband was even able to drive throughout all of that, but luckily there was no traffic and it was 25 minutes to get there. We got to the hospital. It was about 12:40 PM. We left the car on with the hazard lights in front of the hospital. And of course, my husband's bag drops with everything in it <laughs> in front of the hospital. Um, so we get in there and, you know, immediately they obviously realize I need help. So they put me in a wheelchair and we rushed to triage and our midwife met us there. And I couldn't even lay down to be checked because my contractions were so close together. And I really felt like I needed to um, like bend over and get counter pressure. So my midwife is like, you're obviously staying. Let's get you in a room. And um, I got in there and they were trying to put the monitor on me and the nurse in there, as they're having trouble getting the monitor on, says to me, I really need you to get this monitor on because of the great risk you're taking of uterine rupture. And I was at this point just so in the zone that I, getting through the contractions that I was like, I can't let this get to me. I was just too busy trying to cope. So I just kind of silently rolled my eyes and my husband and the midwife were both like, okay, you know, like lay off. And at this point, I still hadn't gotten a, a gown on or anything. I basically just stripped everything off to get on the monitor and I just stayed naked the entire time because I had no modest, modesty at this point. So eventually we got the monitor going and I started feeling pushy almost immediately after that. So I realized we never told the doula to meet us. So my husband texted her to come. She got there as I was pushing. We tried a few different positions and at some point it started to be clear that it wasn't effective. Um, I wasn't really, I guess, pushing effectively. And so I remember the midwife saying, I'm going to give you some help so that this baby doesn't need any NICU time. So I'm going to put my fingers inside you and I want you to push to where you feel them. And I did that a couple of times and I was able to feel my daughter's head, which was really awesome. And then I pushed again one more time the same way and she was out. And it was just so awesome and shocking that it actually happened. And mm -hmm. I, I pulled her to my, to my chest and, and she was, it was just, it was just amazing. So she was, like I said, she did not have IUGR. However, I was say, she, how big was she? I'm just curious. So she ended up being actually smaller than my son. She was six, 
She was six pounds, four ounces, and she was almost 20 inches long. Yeah. And she was in the fifth percentile for weight, but overall she was healthy. And so I will say like the difference was when she was born, like she was considered SGA, which is small for gestational age, but she, her presentation was different. She was more proportionate. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it was, it was just interesting how you could have a baby weighing less and be almost the same length, but very not different. have that. Di- yeah. Yeah. My, yeah. My baby was six, two. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. And she, but she was 18 inches. Yeah. Right. So she's, just yeah. So it puts soft. it in perspective, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, you know, but my, I have to say like, my husband was so amazing the entire time he stayed calm. He advocated for me. He believed in me. And, you know, there were times during my pregnancy that I got annoyed because I felt like he didn't understand how difficult this could be to actually have a vaginal delivery after having a C-section. Yeah. Because he sort of was of the mindset of like, well, this is how it's supposed to happen. And I was like, well, that's what I thought the first time, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, so I felt like I wasn't like getting through to him, but I do feel like that mindset that he had really helped to normalize the process so that he could stay positive when I was doubtful. Yes. Um, and during the contractions, you know, we basically labored at home the entire time. She was born two hours after we got to the hospital. And when I got, when they finally checked me after I started pushing, I was like, maybe this isn't working because I'm not really fully dilated. And the midwife was like, well, I never really got to check you, but mm-hmm. I was complete. I was complete. So, so it was, you know, it was time to push, but yeah. The one thing that I think helped me cope for as long as we did while we were home was my husband kept reminding me you really only have to get through the first 30 seconds and then it starts to ease. So each contraction, we would have the buildup. And then once we were halfway through, it was like, okay, now you're downhill. And I think having that mentality really helped me to stay with it and be able to cope for so long at home without going to the hospital or even having the doula present. But like I said, since I was never in labor, I was thinking, well, we might get to the hospital and I'll be seven centimeters and I'll still have a little ways to go or you know, or even five or four, like who knows? Mm-hmm. So it was really a shock that we got in. But when the last thing that I want to share about this experience is that, you know, during this whole time, I wasn't even thinking about, you know, how long it would take me to push her out. I was just, you know, trying to push, right? Yeah. And I had never done this before. And the midwife did share with me that, you know, when I, cause I asked about the urgency, like why, why did we need to get the baby out so soon once, you know, once she was coming out when you needed to help me and the midwife said, well, they were getting to, ready to use a vacuum oh. because, because the baby's heart rate was starting to not recover as well after each contraction mm. because I guess since I was complete and pushing for about an hour for some reason, I guess, I don't know, I guess they thought the, the baby maybe had been in the canal, you know, far down enough where she should have been out sooner Mm-hmm. where they thought or they thought that I would be able to push her out sooner. Mm-hmm. And because it was taking so long, her heart rate was having trouble recovering. So I, I'm glad that nobody's told that to me in the, in the actual, yeah. in the actual experience. <laughs> in the act, but yeah. yeah. But I, but I, you know, it was scary. It was scary. And I told my midwife, I was scared before I started pushing and they said, you're safe. And I remember feeling like, you're right. Like I have these people around me. I have you, I have my husband, I have my doula. And I had, you know, I had people around me to support that process. And I, 
And I'm grateful that this birth experience and this hospital was very different than the first I experienced because after my daughter was born, I just remember feeling like we did this, like we did this together, you know, like me, my baby, my husband, like we all, this was a, a team effort. And the nurses really, they just kind of let us be. And we had all this time in the room alone with her and it was just so special. And even though we were in a hospital, it really was, I think, as, as good as it could have been. And we got to go home the very next day. So it was, you know, a night and day experience hospital-wise, birth-wise, recovery-wise. And now after having this birth experience, it's really helped me to make peace with my first birth experience. And I don't really see that as a failure anymore. I just see it as a different birth birth story. Yeah, exactly. I love that. Like there is no failing at birth. And we, we oftentimes feel or I guess label ourselves as that failure, but it's because of the way the world creates that word failure, you know, like they put it, they place it into our minds and they they say that word and it's like, Oh, well, if this doesn't happen, you failed, but it's just not true. And so I love that you have come around to say like, okay, like I, what I didn't fail. That was just a different birth experience. Right. Right. And I'm grateful that I've had both experiences now because I do have two beautiful, healthy children, and they arrived mm-hmm. in two very unique ways, even though I had similar pregnancies and, you know, similar questions throughout both pregnancies, the way they arrived was very different. And I feel like I learned so much from them. And, um, and I hope that my story can help other people who might have experienced something similar. Ugh, I love it so much. Thank you so much for being with us today. And Thank like you. you said, kind of being on the opposite end of like, big baby, now small baby, like, Small baby can be a a quote unquote concern, you know, or problem. If you want to say from a provider's standpoint, like they can view things differently. And so, yeah, it's, it's kind of fun and unique to have the opposite end of things. And thank you so much again. And congratulations to your cute two babies, to both your babies, (laughs) babies. And uh, thank you again. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's really been a true pleasure. Interested in sharing your VBAC story on the podcast? Submit your story at the vbaclink.com slash share. For information on all things VBAC, including online and in-person VBAC classes, the VBAC blog, and Julie and Megan's bios, head over to the vbaclink.com. Congratulations on starting your journey of learning and discovery with the VBAC link.